Welcome to Living Adventurously. Today's episode is sponsored by Wildbounds, who provide both inspiration and exceptional kit for your next adventure through their carefully curated online catalogue. Wildbounds partners with independent brands who do only one or two product categories and do them very well indeed. They also review and rate the eco-credentials of each brand and product. Wildbounds offers a discount for students, the NHS and emergency services, and current and former members of the British Armed Forces. And now, added to that distinguished list, listeners, rapscallion listeners to this podcast, can also get a discount when shopping at Wildbounds. Use the code ADVENTUROUSLY10 when checking out on www.wildbounds.com. Today's guest is David Hanney, the CEO of Alpkit, an outdoor brand born out of a passion for running, hiking, climbing, camping, swimming and biking. I'm sponsored by Alpkit, so I appreciated the opportunity to ask David about building an ethical, sustainable brand, doing what you love, spending time in the outdoors and practising what you preach. When, when you make something that you think is great, how do you know whether anyone else will think it's great and actually buy it? Oh, my. Um, so I thought you were going somewhere else with that question. So um, when, how do you know? Well, we can go somewhere else. No, no, no. It wasn't more interesting at all. <laughs> when we design and develop product, there, there it's really, really hard to know because there's obviously things that we love and we think are absolutely amazing. And there's set times you just know about a product. Um, and I tend to have these, this little rule that if a product we develop is something we want to take in about Vance the Alps, and I just live on the edge of Kinder Scout here, and if it works in the Peak District, it works on the hill here, then I think it's a really good product. And it tends to be when we give it a personality of its own uh, and we're really clear about the benefits, then it, then it flies. It does really well. The how many you buy of them, is a real challenge and it's just years of buying far too much of stuff that ages and covers <laughs> things that don't sell have taught us it's actually about uh try and just flow stock in rather than buy huge amounts which i think is better overall i hate the idea of buying thousands of something and it just not sticking around so good retailing and good buying isn't actually about the quantity you sell it's about how you flow stock in but as the first question, we've gone straight into yeah, a detail of, of buying and retailing, which it was, isn't... It was very nerdy, but I found that really interesting because I'm always suckered in by the fact that if I buy 100 T-shirts, they'll cost me X per unit. But if I can only buy 300, then they get deliciously well, no. much cheaper. And then I don't know, that's buy... a bit of a fallacy, actually, the, the cost and sell, because of... of sometimes gone around and um we buy small quantities of stuff and sometimes we go and say i'll buy ten thousand what's the price for ten thousand and or when you see the orders that people like to cat on place they place orders for millions and they do pay quite less but it's not massively less it's not as less as you you'd think unless you choose to buy in a factory which is just cheap and how you can sell a three pound t-shirt is just a place i don't want to go you know it's just there's there's things going you know yeah. places it's been made materials you don't want um so yeah so what what have you what have you thought 
say from from Alkit or from any of your other uh, things you've done that you thought now this is going to sell millions and then it's a total flop. So it's presumably something that you've loved and no one else cares about. Or perhaps vice versa of some well, we'll surprise. Just, so we were just product. talking about, um, we started a video on demand channel, Steepage. We didn't start it, sorry. It was set up by Kendall Mountain Festival, went to Birchbit, and we thought, oh, this is amazing. Because I love really immersive films like the one, you know, the Northern Quarter, the, the court film you, you made, Northern Quarter, that's in Manchester, Empty Quarter. Empty Quarter, <laughs> yeah. Northern Quarter would be different. And I really thought, Three pounds to video on demand would sell incredibly well on demand. So this was this was a place with a catalogue where you could yeah, rent really online films. Yeah, I really to link together quality filmmakers of adventure with the hundreds of thousands of of adventure enthusiasts in the UK. So you could, on a Monday evening you could watch films, and um, I had the joy of once being a judge for Shaf, and we had literally 150 different films to watch. And I've never had so much fun with a family of going through, looking at film after film after film. I found it, that kind of thing really inspiring. But that's because, it, that's because I live in Derbyshire, that's though, isn't that's... it? Yeah. <laughs> I don't go very far. Yeah, yeah. 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 not much else yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, but so, but that steep edge, you thought yeah, it was fantastic. It was one where no we couldn't keep our customers happy because there's so much free stuff on YouTube. We couldn't keep filmmakers happy because... I was actually embarrassed about the royalty payments we'd make. You know, it'd be 300 quid for absolutely superb work, and that is a good thing. And you just felt like cutting the royalty checks every quarter. I just felt embarrassed at how how we haven't been able to mobilise it. So then we it actually closed. I mean, it's forced closure, really, because of all the changes with GDPR, what we had to do to kind of keep it going. We, we, we couldn't. So that's a failure. Okay, the failures are good. We like failures. So when you, so I still haven't asked you question one on my list, by the way. So I hope you've got four yeah. and a half hours to spare now, because uh, this has made me now move on to thinking about when you are binge watching an evening of um, adventure films yeah. for an outdoor film festival. As someone who has uh, spent a lot of time trying to get into film festivals and still failed, one of my failures in life. I've never got into Kendall Mountain Film Festival, but we'll. We'll leave that for yeah. my therapy sessions. But when you're binge watching an evening of non-back-to-back -back films, what makes a good adventure film the sort of thing that is going to get that? Up is, by well, film I can't answer that really, but it's, for me, it's very personal. I just like good narrative, good characters, and interest, interesting people. So I do tend to get a little bit tired of the big, expansive, like another kind of ski heli skiing film insane kind of stuff when it's just out there so things that you can yeah exactly so when, when you, think you can um yeah. do so there's really remarkable ones about families going off into alaska and the, the arctic you know there's really you know there's some really really good quality films um, and it, there's almost something when the people presenting have got a really good way of communicating with their their audience and that communication can come through so different so many different ways um and things that's just admiring and that, and that could be happily filmed on a phone or a rubbishy old camera, yeah. maybe drones yeah. and Red Bull yeah. and stuff. I think it has to be, sometimes I find uh, people just uh, filming their holidays is a bit much. Um, 
and you kind of think it's a very modern <laughs> world isn't it where because a lot you know when i was growing up you didn't have mobile phones and didn't have instagram and you didn't document you couldn't contact anybody in you know unless you you know, post response letters or a very very expensive phone call and i kind of like that world in a nostalgic yeah. way so i don't really get now what happens on trips how you how you you post everything on social media and it's the social media aspect that's important as the being in a being in a place well you have to post everything on social media so that you can get picked up yes. and sponsored by a brand yes. I'm part of that problem <laughs> <laughs> yeah i blame, right. I blame you dave <laughs> So this is the sort of question that I would not be able to answer myself on the spot. So feel free to pass. But what are, can you give any recommendations of good adventure films you've oh, enjoyed? Um, I wish I could remember the names. This is well, exactly. I can never do this. If any There's pop into your head, yell them out. Um, who, after the earthquake in New Zealand, filmed Fifty Two Peaks, something like that, running, and it is just a really wonderful documentary. I wish you could remember the name because there's a people on the I'll find. Oh, this is not good. I, 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 I'm sensing a new quiz show here. Dave Hanny describes adventure films. So it's like it's like the northern court of Manchester, <laughs> yeah, exactly. but I think there was a desert. Exactly. Okay, I'm, this isn't going very, very well. So now, uh, 10 minutes into recording, yeah. I will now ask you question one. Hello, David because <laughs> uh, we don't actually really know who you are yet so what sort of thing do you enjoy doing in the outdoors yourself i can see a montage behind you that show of family photos yeah. that shows you very much yeah we love the outdoors i mean we we are we lifelong love of the outdoors uh, and the family we live in on the edge of the peak district which is a deliberate choice just to be i want to see rocks out in the morning what i actually do and i'm always conscious that in terms of adventure, the people I work with seem to do, uh, do a lot more adventurous stuff than I do. But there's other people who look at what I do and think I'm living a certain life. Um, so in terms of adventure, there are people way out in the class um, doing far more adventurous stuff. But a good day for me, I just love walking, running, riding. My wife is a really keen outdoor swimmer, so I tend to accompany her on odd wild swims. We spend a lot of nights under canvas. Um, camping uh, really the best day for us is just a big long day in the hills big long day in the mountains if it's in the Alps staying at a refuge overnight um, another big day in the hills multi-day walking that kind of thing um, the outdoors is very important to us absolutely important it's, it's what we are defines what we do yeah so you you uh, I, one of my things I enjoy by the way yeah. is playing devil's advocate so um you just you just said then there's a lot of people who are yeah. out of your class doing adventure stuff and a lot of people yeah. are far more hardcore than you so why what on earth puts you in a position to be able to run an outdoor brand yeah um i think it's probably i mean it's, it's something I, I kind of chose to do and i wanted to do and i set up and then just started doing it um <laughs> so it's probably good it's one really I, I do have this thing when we go to big shows in Germany and there's big shows in the Far East. You think, does the world really need another waterproof jacket or does the world really need another bike or tent? But when you come back to the Peak District and living around here, I just think there's there's things that outdoor brands are doing. Um, and it's probably because I don't see myself, we don't see ourselves as really hardcore. Um that I think we can make products that are far more appropriate for the place that we're living in the UK 
and far more appropriate to what an awful lot of people are doing. And there's a the thing about t- taking out the elitism out of um, out of outdoor activity. There's a there's the, the picture which is from a horrible situation of Everest a couple of years ago. You remember you, when you saw the queue of people going, and I use that yeah. as a bit of an analogy for outdoor brands. The outdoor brands currently, the, the performance brands, are almost driving harder, higher, faster, more dangerous. But as a result of that, you've got a queue of people up one peak. When you look at the picture, there's all this other space and no one's there. And then you, you come back to that and you say you could almost put every performance outdoor brand are actually aspiring for something that a lot of people in the UK just don't relate to and don't aspire to be. I mean, I'd love in my dreams, I'd love to go up Everest. And in my dreams, I'd love to go Antarctica and I'd love to go to every space camp and I will one day. But how relevant is it now? You know, I don't like the idea of I wouldn't fly to Nepal now, you know, for a two-week holiday. That I just can't justify that kind of activity. And the Antarctic is a place to to protect, is not a place for middle-aged blokes to go to for the holidays. So I kind of think there's something about a brand which is very relevant. Um and it's you know taking the elitism out. And uh, so I just think in this huge world there's a space for an outkit. I like that idea of all the brands trying to get to the top of Mount Everest and then all those, yeah. as you say, thousands yeah. of empty, smaller, lesser known, perpaps even unnamed yeah. hills roundabout. That's a really nice analogy. For me, the outkit, for... What I hope is that the people who understand us, they're the people who will be looking and seeing Everest and seeing this open space and choosing where do I want to be and they wouldn't be queuing up Everest. And I want to be very careful about my, because yeah. uh, I'm making light of a very, very tragic situation, which is, isn't, isn't mm. good. No, it's, um, it, it's, it's, it was a, it was a good, yeah. a useful analogy then. So, um, yeah, Alkit, it says on your website, we run, hike, climb, camp, swim and bike. Generalists, we don't serve mm. the elite. So that's clearly very much your core. I suppose it's, you're trying to get people like you, friends yeah. like you, generalists yeah. out there doing stuff. Um, performance, product performance, so we hold very high standards for product performance. So even though we're saying we're not elitist, it's not that our, our equipment is designed to really work and it's absolutely for the outdoor enthusiast. There's no, nothing watered down about our products. Well, when we design, we aspire, we, that's what we aspire to be. Yeah. So you're trying to make good products for... Yeah, in UK conditions. People. So UK conditions are so different from North American, so different from European conditions, because we live in a damp, temperate climate. And a lot of the outdoor brands focus yeah. on the bigger markets of Alps, Europe, and so the products aren't necessarily as well designed for the UK conditions. So what brand, you can answer this question um, being away from the outdoor yeah. sphere, it might be a easier for you but uh what brands do you admire when you when you're looking at a company think they are doing stuff really well it doesn't have to be outdoors who, who who's doing good stuff that that anyone who's interested in brands and building brands um, can learn from? Uh, we'll use brands in the outdoors because the my other kind of aspect I mean, people like arcteryx are doing an amazing job and i also do have a lot of respect for the performance brands 
in the UK, like mountain equipment are incredible. There's a, a little bit, um, what I like about the UK outdoor market, it's a really lovely industry to work and it's very much centered. If you draw a ring, ring around the Peak District, you've got Sheffield where Rab started, Terra Nova a bit south, people like Mount Equipment, Ron Hill, Craghoppers, we're all based around the Peak District and the kind of world's be big enough for all of us. So at some point you feel quite competitive on a micro level, but on a big level, the outdoors is just good. And, you know, as a, I'm a user of equipment, as as well as a, a working you know running a brand so um i do like the you know brands i think our cherries are superb uh mounted equipment is superb. Mm. Uh, you know the, rab you know very good yeah yeah okay so when i when i started i didn't originally want to record a podcast series for my shed i wanted to be out on my bike meeting people for real but seeing as i couldn't do that i thought about stuff that feels important to me loosely linked to adventure um and one of those aspects is brands who are doing good stuff mm. and doing it the right way and but for, but for each of these themes that i cared about i put a question on twitter saying who's doing good work to do with young people and adventure who's doing good work with brands and sustainable and promoting a a an appropriate message of adventure and you'll be pleased to know that outkit got okay. mentioned a good number of times but far and away by a mile yeah. came patagonia for people being incredibly impressed so what what did patagonia do well oh, i mean they i think their principles over a long time 30 40 years have been well 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 established and they have led the way in terms of particularly in the us of um advocacy um which has been beautifully executed um they are very good i was gonna uh I th we're with so it's hard it, it's, i admire patagonia a lot um and to say so can be influenced by them but there's a, the aspects, there's things I'm not so keen on. So I don't want to be critical of, well, I'm kind of being critical. I find sometimes you go in and you see like 45 quid for effectively uh, something that you know costs $5. And you think, how can you justify those prices? And I really sometimes struggle with the, um, the pricing of stuff. I think it's elitist. Is that not just a, because people like what they do and they've built up a good reputation, they've now essentially become, well, people mm. say Patagucci, don't they? Sort of a, a fashion, wearing a Patagonia t-shirt is a trendier mm. thing to do than wearing a Alpkit t-shirt. And fashion in general is people are willing to pay lots of money for yeah. what's basically a t-shirt. Isn't that, isn't that just when they when they cross over from being an outdoor brand to just a so, I mean, clothing brand? Yeah, so that's something I, I don't, I don't want Alpkit to become. Um, is where you kind of someone sees the market, the opportunity says, well, you know, we can make a few more quid here. Let's put the prices up. And then, and then like we uh, are very keen that we are, we do um, what we see bring good, good value to. You know, we want to bring really good quality and really good value. And we, I'm not afraid to to uh, sell expensive stuff, but that tends to be because the quality of the fabrics that we've chosen. And the construction methods and where we've chosen to make it make it really um really really special mm, okay um so i think 
one of the things Patagonia do have done very well is yeah. st- storytelling. And one of the core components of Patagonia's storytelling yeah. is their founder story. Yeah. Yvonne uh, Chouinard's got a good, yeah. great backstory. His book, Let My People Go Surfing, is a fantastic yeah. read. Whether you care about adventure or business or the environment, it's a really good book. So mm-hmm. I think that story is really good. But Alkit has got a nice story of being yeah. founded by friends. And this is the sort of thing that I often um, daydream about. When I go off on trips, either by myself or with friends, a regular sort of daydream is, oh, this tent's a bit rubbish. I reckon I could make a really good tent. And then I start daydreaming about how I'd love to to build up a brand and start it with my mates. And wouldn't it be wonderful fun? And even now, during my regular um, uh it seems to be about my every year midlife crisis, which I've been having for about 25 years. I think, oh, I don't want to work in a shed anymore. I want to go start a brand with my friends. Mm-hmm. So um, could you just tell me the, the sort of the brief sort of story of how Outkit got started um, and how you go, how, how you go from just a bunch of friends thinking it'd be great to start a brand to actually doing it actually made so it happen i joined outkit so outkit was existing before i joined i joined in 2000 yeah yeah, so other friends. yeah nick ken cole and jim uh nick all of them had worked in the outdoor industry for a long time uh had met uh, as they grew up in cambridge and nick uh was working as design director of equip which is the brand that owns rap um and cole was working there jim was they were all working there and Nick quit and set up Alpkit, and it was came out of a bit of a frustration of um, effectively designing what you see as a great product, and then having to get through the gatekeeper of a buyer at one of the retail chains. So he'd come up with a great product, and they're saying, "Yeah, but have you got it in black? I just want to buy the black gloves." And he'd be going, "Look at this, fantastic!" And so he just thought, if only he could sell direct. And in the early days of the internet you'd see, see what the cost price was like in the Patagonia example, $5 being sold for 40, 40 quid. I think there's a huge amount of margin there. All we have to do is effectively sort of trade prices. And the business plan initially on a fact packet was saying you'd be millionaires in a, in a, you know, you know, you'll be hugely successful. It's like I was saying earlier, <laughs> you just, you know, you do something, you'd be hugely successful. Um, and quickly after about five days, the, the plan developed when you just realized the importance of good customer service, listening to your customers and how the businesses can change. And it's all about just serving customers and bringing a really good product, serving customers. Um, and that is established very, very early outkit days. And you can see it is very much uh, as a brand. It's got that. I liken it to it's almost like four friends. You know, I'm in my early 50s now. And when I meet people as a college with, even though I haven't seen them for 10 years, you know, in some examples, you immediately lock back into a kind of friendship and the warmth of people you know very well is, is really powerful. And that's something I think really comes out of the warmth of Alpkit, which comes out of a friendship. Um, and I think it's a really nice brand, a really nice business because that friendship uh, is something that we see connected with our team, with our suppliers, <laughs> with our customers, um, it's a very important aspect of what we do. Yeah, you you certainly all seem to practice what you preach, which I think is a, a good side of things. So, uh, well, going out, going out litter picking, like a team yeah. litter picking out, um, and um, yeah, you seem to you seem to actually 
and that I think my initial impression of Outkit when I first came across Outkit, which is probably about, yeah, I guess two thousand and eight ish when I first started um, entering the miserable world of bivy bags. That was bivy bags and Outkit. Yeah. They were my first connection, really. And I was thought of you as being this very small, friendly but yeah. online thing. It's interesting. I think can think of you as being friendly, but also. Yeah. On the internet, so it's um, that's that thing. That's quite interesting that you were only online yeah. for a long, long time. Um, but then you you moved then from being online company doing quite well to having shops in this day and age. And I, as an internationally renowned financial and retail expert, I've sold at least a hundred t-shirts in my life. I thought that was an yeah. absolutely terrible decision in the twenty tens to yeah. move from online to stores. Um, so why did you do that and how is it um, I out? like having shops and I think there's a little bit we're all retailers are and so we've been fighting <laughs> that urge to have a shops and it's probably it was in the in the you know Nick said always 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 thinking of, of, of having shops there's kind of very kind of straightforward commercial reasons which is that um, the internet isn't a free democratic place we kind of hoped it would be and Google and Facebook really control access to 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 customers, their gatekeepers, and they charge an awful lot of money to reach new customers. Um, so the the idea is just to have stores in a place where customers hang out, um, which is in local areas of activity, and then the store itself is a huge way that new customers can meet uh, you know meet what we do. So we started in Hathersage because um, you know in the Peak Park it reported it gets like 20 million visitors and Hathersage is you know understanding change it's really a, to a certain extent our spiritual home so I've been looking at the shop there for a good three years because it's owned by uh, or outside the shop down the road which is a very very good independent outdoor store um, they've got the main lease on it so we had to rent we rent it from outside um, and it's um, it's been great it's a way of introducing new customers. We actually see the, if you take out how this, all the store sales, the uh, web sales are stronger where we've got a store than where we haven't. So I kind of, I just see customers and customers don't purely shop online. They also shop in stores. Store customers don't exclusively shop in stores. They just shop online. And there's a, it's a sense of place. Um, it used to drive me nuts how outdoor brands didn't to me seem to work really well closely with the retailers who didn't really work really closely with the the place like the peak park and the activity providers places like thornbridge and holford center the activity guide so even though we're all connected and we're all reliant on each other the communication across as broadly is, is pretty pretty low so having a store where you can have a school of adventure courses so we have we run courses where if you're in Manchester and Sheffield, we can introduce you to mountain biking, bouldering, climbing, first aid courses, mountain leader training courses, having a good sense of place, and also having repair stations in there and showing people. So it's it's um, very much a uh, a part of the village now. Does that answer your question? I find that it did very well. I found it re what really found interesting of that answer was your first sentence yeah i, I dozed off a bit after that, but that. The, um <laughs> what you what what you said at the start was that the in, essentially the internet internet's yeah. not a fair democratic yeah. place there are gatekeepers yeah. to the internet which is always the total opposite of what my experience of life so my 
working life, I suppose, essentially came comes of trying to, uh, yeah. at heart, I want to be an author. So my early days, I had the gatekeepers of trying to find publishers, trying to yeah. get an agent, get a publisher, and those gatekeepers pushed back and pushed back, and I failed. So in the end, I self-published my first book. Then I faced the gatekeepers of trying to get my book into physical retail shops, which was impossible self-published, even in local shops. It was like, or shops would take two copies and then send them back unsold. It was a total a nightmare. And then along comes self Amazon self-publishing. And suddenly that to me felt the most democratic open thing for an author ever. And I know Amazon has some issues, which, yeah, it has some issues. And yet as an author, being able to use the internet, a small independent author, the internet has been the most democratic, liberating thing Possible. Yeah. So I found that really interesting then that you said oh, that the, the shops are... It was, a, shops. it was a free and democratic place. And over time, these gatekeepers have emerged. So and it, things are controlled by by you know, people we mentioned earlier. So something like half product searches happen on Amazon, which is an incredible amount of stuff. Mm. And when you think about their distribution network, you know, wherever you are in the world, you can get Amazon pretty much delivered to you. It's quite quite incredible uh, and i remember mm. it's ha half terrifying but equally yeah. that is where my books are for sale so half the people who are searching yeah. can now actually find my book where sadly local bookshop down the road or waterstones don't have my book so that yeah. i've had to then get into the beast yeah get yeah. into bed with the beast yeah yeah and you um, them to them. which actually i don't uh, you be can become beholden pardon? to them so we've had big debates yes, where they yeah. should not sell on Amazon. Okay, and there's big arguments to do that because half product searches are there and you can introduce people to the brand. And there's big reasons not to because actually we, we're about a direct relationship with our customers and that, that is very important to us and the customers know us and showing that friendship. And when that, that's gone in an Amazon world. Yeah. I'm trying, my brain is whirring now thinking, do I talk for half an hour about that? Which is very interesting. You're not, you're no, shaking you your head. Okay. Well, in that case, I'll move great. on. Let me then. We could do another let podcast me, about well, Amazon. I'm conscious. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. I, yes. Yeah. Okay. Deal. Because we're half an hour in and I haven't yet started to talk to you about what I was meant to talk to you about, which is typical of me, which is essentially the theme of how do you do good for the world, but also make money. And that, that's not my question. That's the theme of what I want to be asking you about. So there's a really good um, online article come out uh, recently by a young woman called Rosie Watson, who's running to Asia. Um, and she's, she's written a great long piece. It's really good. But one sentence she's put in there, which is, even if you claim to raise awareness about environmental issues, raising awareness is not taking action. So how does Alpkit encourage local adventure rather than encouraging people to fly far afield? That's a big question. I wasn't and not quite sure where to start answering it. And there's something very nice about what we do because ultimately I kind of think, you know what, I just sell anoraks. And in the huge complex world, I just we do what we do. Um, and also we exist to because of consumerism. Um, so there's a huge contradiction. So I sometimes struggle with brands saying, I'm going to be a positive impact company when you're making product, shipping it across 
the world. So what we really try and do the, is by developing well thought through product, which has got a specific purpose that enables people to do stuff in, in a level of safety they wouldn't otherwise have, that, that you know, you've got a product which is good. And then we do design in things we've got a phrase again you'll love longer recognizing if you've got a good product and you keep it as long as possible and use it the lovely thing about the outdoors is you have such a long-term relationship with your equipment you know you've, you've my new tent is now 25 years old and i've just the places we've been in that tent is amazing and it's currently pictured in my garden outside because we've been sleeping outside in our new tent um if you keep stuff going that is really good but also alongside that as a brand we really recognize that i take it very seriously that this is my call now it's my job to sort to act responsibly and live the change that i've been wanting to see for decades and i've got this little story i'll say i'll share because um my mum and i've got a younger brother when she was moving house i went there a couple of years ago and a Blue Peter annual for something like 1987 came out. And on the back of cover, there was this thing about greenhouse gases, reduce waste, the the kind of social justice in the world, the level of poverty in the world, and kind of in third world debt. And you kind of think, in my entire adult life, I have known about the issues that the world is facing. I've got no excuse. And now... So what, what year was that pitch? You know, and... Wow. Please, will you get a picture of that somehow? That that is amazing. That people have been talked about. Yeah, sorry, cut you off so, mid flow, but 30 years you've known this, and you, yeah, Dave Hanning, yeah, so it's now, and you work in, in industry, and you don't actually, you can within a company. Because, you know, me and my career, I work for a finance company, an uh, accounting company, I've worked for a big retailer. Um, you talk about stuff. And I've seen in the workplace the stand the things we did at home naturally, like recycle products using recyclable, you know, buy buy green energy. In the workplace, it was really hard. And you just thought in the workplace, if you could do stuff. So now I kind of run my own company. I kind of in my head, I have my 21-year-old and my younger brother holding this annual, going, come on, <laughs> this is you now. It's you, you're, you're the one. If you can't do stuff in, in your own company, then actually uh, you shouldn't be doing the job you're doing. So um, we do things so we are very clear about uh, our sustainability. And we're not perfect, but we're on a, on a journey. And also we're not judgmental. Uh, I don't want to be a, a kind of shouldist and weighed down by the the woes because actually the outdoors is good. It's a lovely, lovely place you want to be. And it's really important that in nature right now can play such an important role in the revitalization of our cities and help introduce, you know, right now in the pandemic is a kind of recovery. There's a time for us outdoor enthusiasts to lead by example and show people just how, what a wonderful place, you know, the, the Peak District is the lungs of, of the nation has been the lungs of the nation for 150 years you know we as you know living in the peak need to welcome people and just show how good outdoors can do so we have got a very clear sustainability framework the other aspect which um we happened across um a model which i think is actually really good for companies uh private companies and we set up the outkit foundation which is a charity um and we really support grassroots direct action projects 
um, we give small awards from 50 quid to 500 quid um, to really help uh, people get outside. And it, the, we've got a whole series of kind of different strands or emphasis that we'd look at. One's diversity and inclusion in the outdoors, environmental projects, so rewilding, that kind of aspect, education to treat, train people to do mountain leader forest schools, first aid courses, You've got things like participation, mental health and well-being. But the kind of judgment is really you want to encourage people just to leave the world in a better place than than you've left you've left it. So that I really like the way we we move one percent of our outkit sales into the charity. We've got nine trustees, uh, and the directors of outkit are outnumbered on the board, so we don't get away, which is unusual you know, difficult for me to <laughs> handle sometimes but um so we decided we would make awards but i'm really proud of the fact it's small awards we make the application process as easy as possible we've helped something like 780 projects now 100 projects entirely within uh the, the pandemic which was really to support food access issues you know food democracy and mm. and to to validate the work that people are doing and i really i really I really you can probably tell. I really, really, uh, I get a lot of uh, of um, reward or a lot of satisfaction as at being part of uh, the conduit of getting kind of cash through from our customers effectively into get helping people get outdoors. It's really, really, really important part of what we do. Mm. Um, so, how, how much money is the foundation raised now? So it's. Um, it's, and so it's little in terms of the grand scheme of things, but the, the kind of projects we've helped and we get stories back is, is really inspiring, like totally inspiring. I've got one story in particular that I talk to is and um, talk about, and it's to do with, with Peak District Mosaic and the Conversation Club in Sheffield who took uh, a group of refugees from Sheffield to the Peak District. And it was one of the smallest projects. It was 70 quid to effectively pay for return train fare and a cup of coffee at the Penny Pot Cafe. And took you know ten people out who who then brought their own lunch with them when walking up to get onto onto the tops of Kinder. We actually got just you know after the woods after Grandslow, you know kind of area, sat on the side of the hill, had all different nationalities eating you know bringing local foods you know that they cooked, and to make the connection that the Peak Park is free, and it's on your doorstep. It's half an hour away from a train journey, which is seven quid. So when you think about projects, 70 pounds in the context of Outkit, I mean, it's a lot of money for people, but in the context of Outkit, it isn't that, and our advertising, you know, 70 pounds doesn't pay for anything in advertising nowadays. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and um, that that is another conversation I'd like to have with you, which would also take an entire hour of the difficulty yet simplicity of getting in this case refugees people yeah. from urban backgrounds out of the city to the peak district and this is a perfect example because sheffield to the peak district for people who don't know is about yeah. 20 minutes yeah. on a train or something it's ridiculously close it's you know it's closer than you would go to ikea and yet it's a totally it's a million different miles. If, if not you're world. not close to the train yeah. station, you're you know a couple of miles away from in Manchester or Sheffield. The, it feels impossible. You're just not shown. And if, if we can just help someone with a helping hand to take people to the outdoors, um, now we need to have the infrastructure mm. in place. We need to support local communities. 
hence the litter pick because you know on one hand i really 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 want to encourage people to get into the outdoors it's it's such a it's a joy to me personally in my life and you need to welcome it but local communities particularly at the moment as well are nervous about people coming in masses out from from towns and cities and they are the litter situation currently is the infrastructure isn't placed to cope with it and actually living in an urban world you're used to these those little machines going around the streets clear clearing up after people on sunday morning at five o'clock so that it can be a complete mess at 2 a.m in the morning and it's all clean and you know cleaned up and that kind of way that infrastructure isn't in place in in the peak district or in our trails yeah this is a litter is a real problem so we have to access and education work with communities to to in this way i think leading by example so one one thing i've been learning about recently a geeking in my newer geekier life is a very exciting phrase of circular economy um which I, I imagine your eyes being a bit of a geek will light up at something like that circular economy yeah. recycling so could you tell me um d- uh, briefly about the continuum project that yeah. you guys so do? there's another story we were coming through uh, I was walking through Manchester and seeing and it was the, the the stark recollection is homelessness on the streets and I was thinking we outkit through our returns process not that we get heaps of customers sending stuff back but we've got a really established you know you can send something free post we get it and it's a well-established framework so i was just thinking when you're seeing homeless in, in manchester again it's been 21 what can we do about that and there's only it's, it's a small step and it's we can't really do, do an awful lot but the the idea is to get uh, the outdoor product that people aren't using out of their gear cupboards or wardrobes get it send it back to us using the well-established returns process or a box that you have in our store. And then we're working with charity partners to get that into back into use. So we work with you know, Canaan Trust, uh, Birmingham City Mission, Recycle Bike in Nottingham. So we've got about half a dozen partners who, who are hungry for product. So effectively, we, we're then connecting our customers' wardrobes with the with charitable you know partners and what i try and do we we don't do the thing of saying come and give us it back and we'll give you 10 percent off so it's 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 an altruistic thing where we just encourage people to if you don't want it we'll take it back and it's any brand it's not outkit products so any outdoor any outdoor products you also Mm -hmm. um repair repair other brands kit as well so all the stores have got repair stations um and we've been repairing since 2004 um and it's really nice to see say so we we do repair we don't do free repairs because again i've got this thing about the um it's not a marketing gimmick it is we've got a very skilled seamster who can do wonders with product in the store so we we charge you know we we pay you know the salary we've got machines in there and we charge. Um, it's not expensive in a, in overall, but it's a paid for service. So we do repair. Um, I, I think that's interesting saying that because there are. I've seen at times adverts like "Don't buy our brands because we're saving the planet." Sounds very noble, but actually is a very cunning way to yeah. make you buy brands. So I quite like that you just say up front of, "Yeah, we're we're, we're a business, but we'll we're." 
we're going to make your product live for longer rather than ending up in your tip. And, you know, the fact that things aren't free, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And there's also no, we don't live in a five-star world. You know, when you kind of see, we've got 99%, you know, we're, we're perfect. We, you know, it's, it's rare that things are actually a five-star world. You know, you don't have 100% of people mm. who love something. And I don't really want 100% of people to love something. I want people to be saying, you know, if you did this, it'll be a little bit better. And we listen to that. And so someone giving three stars and a good piece of mm. constructive advice is fine. Um, so... Yeah, being able to appealing to everyone is not not a it's not yeah. possible, not ideal. So, um, being having a meaningful specific, yeah. so being meaningful and specific about what you do, you can't possibly please. I remember listening to one you of your podcasts. You talked about something a few years ago. You were talking about um, yeah, call it, you call it something like the cat falling out of a tree business where you were saying, oh my God, you know, I do this work, which I put my heart and soul into it and I might get 1500 views of it. And then they go onto YouTube and you've got a cat falling out of a tree and you get a million views. And you kind of think, oh God, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And then you think, but you have to think you're not, you're not doing anything wrong. If you want to be in the cat falling out of a tree business, do that. If you want to do really good quality work that appeals to 1500 people, that's what you do and i kind of see we're not mass market we're, we're we're really for the enthusiast of outdoor activity the people who just love you know love nature and then we don't have to do the stuff like the facebook advertising because to our to our customer if you see a really you know see our bike you don't have to do you know when we've got it right you don't have to do a lot more because the person just looks at that bike and imagines what you can do on it they're an educated customer um and so you can just you know show the bike and, and the, the product tells the story which is which is the thing i love about you know the outdoor industry we're not the only i think there's other industries that yeah you know where people just enthusiasts just it connects in a way well every industry isn't it you be your niche in your yeah. in the pen selling business or the post-it note business yeah. and you find your niche um david i'm conscious of your time you have an empire to run uh, you probably also have breakfast to eat. Uh, I need to talk to you for about an hour about the world of Amazon. We need to talk for about an hour about how we get that tiny but enormous step from the busy city to yeah. getting people into nature in a useful, meaningful way. Um, and goodness knows what else. Um, but yeah, time you. is up. So um, I've really enjoyed. Thank you. <laughs> I also, the 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 summary also is I'm really hungry, and it's uh, and that usually dictates me editing yeah. podcasts. So thank you so much for everything we've done together. I really appreciate it, and thank you for uh, joining me on my podcast today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed. 
for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.